0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse.
1: Welcome to uh, our next episode. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today. It is David Dark. He is a lifelong educator in Nashville. He teaches among incarcerated communities and is on the faculty of the College of Theology at Belmont University. He's also the author of The Possibility of America, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything and Everyday Apocalypse. We are just so grateful to have you on the show, David. Very glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, before we uh, get into conversation, can you choose the text, the scriptural passage that you want to read that has the power and potential to turn our world upside down?
2: Yes, and the passage that I'm choosing is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, and here it is. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers Of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Hmm.
0: Now that's a passage. Uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to this. David, we we don't often do this, but um, if you don't mind, I would like to quote a passage from your new book, which I I am loving. Like um, as soon as you mentioned uh, um, Jim Lawson uh, in the introduction, I was like David and I are going to be friends for life. This is great. But uh, I think it's the second chapter um, this quote comes from and it's fire. It, it reads in some circles uh, referring to the term Christ almost seems to function as a code word for white nationalism disguised as Christianity to genuinely confess Jesus as the Messiah is to insist on his politics, his way of being in the world goes that his teachings are to be pursued as normative. It mustn't just be a secret handshake for those in the know concerning the importance of a certain kind of spiritual component that will have little or nothing to say on the subjects of the disenfranchised, the incarcerated, or the devastation of the natural world. When somebody claims to know him, or that somebody else doesn't, it is a reference to the beloved community of Jesus, is it a reference to the beloved community of Jesus and the prophets, or is it prayer coverage for the military industrial entertainment incarceration complex? <laughs> Ooh, that, it's a mouthful. That, that is a word though. That, that was, I was telling Drew before we came on, um, Dave, I'm not sure if you were aware, but in 2001, I lived in Nashville. Oh, Wow. Um, Yeah, yeah. So I went to Lipscomb University. Uh, Lee Camp uh, was my professor for biblical ethics. Uh, I lived with Carl Meyer um, in East Nashville. We were one of two white people within eight blocks at the time before all the fixies and hipster barbershops and everything else that is East Nashville now. And I was trying to describe to Drew that um, Nashville is just a particular experience like nothing else I've ever experienced before in the world. More steeples than trees, it seemed like, for this Aussie. Our first question, mm-hmm. is, um, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? And I have a, a feeling both what you share in uh, your writing about um, uh, your dad, um, uh, but also just the reality yeah. of Nashville, that it's got a certain flavor to it that can't be extracted away from the context of America.
2: It's true, it's true. I will note too, that I am of Nashville. I mean, I am from Nashville. I, I lived in Northern Ireland for a while. I lived in France for a bit. Um, wow. But Where I have never really lived in Northern left. Ireland. Um, there was a YMCA cross community center um, called the Green Hill Y in Newcastle, which is huh. just South of Belfast. And I lived there oh, wow. for about a year and a half um, doing cross community work. I've, I'm 50. And um, I was probably 22 when I did that. And I would say that I was largely politicized in some sense by living in Northern Ireland Mm. and by being urged because we're doing this Catholic, Protestant, sectarian work. um, Hopefully this isn't too much of a rebel, but we would bring technically Catholic kids, technically Protestant kids. Um, We would take them canoeing help them build community across the sectarian divide. And we had them draw a map of their town, whatever it might be. And the Catholic kids could end up filling out the blank space that the Protestant kids had on their maps and vice versa. Um, I decided to do one of Nashville. And I recognized that as a white man in Nashville, that there were whole sections that I was not familiar with. We've got Fisk, we've got TSU, mm. Jefferson Street, all of this history that I'm familiar with now. My brother teaches at Tennessee State University. But when I was 22, I was, oh goodness, just, and to get straight to it, I, I attended what I now know was a segregationist academy in Nashville. Wow. Um, wow. Didn't know that at the time. But being in Northern Ireland, I became more aware of my own blinders. Um, yes. And and yet, lest I portray my family as, um, you know, crazed fundamentalist or something, um, my mom and dad were both, we, we attended church. We would have been called evangelical, I suppose, but they were also lifelong Democrats. They were very, alive to um um history and um yeah nashville has that we could say it is the buckle of the bible belt Mm -hmm. but there's also this guilty conscience there's also the awareness that this is one of the places where the lunch counter sit-ins were first undertaken james lawson did that that's right Yeah, so I I would have known a lot of that, but I I had not yet figured out how to identify um, as a um, socially conscious activist, in a way. Um, Yeah, Nashville is this mixed bag um, of Christian, I want to put that in quote, publishing, Mm -hmm. the prayer trade, I like to call it. but it's also a place that has sometimes hosted, um, it's Will Campbell. It's it's a living yeah. witness to so many contradictions. Um, but to answer the question, I would say that the Bible was a formidable text that was revered in my home. Um, it was not, grew up in, within a tradition called the Church of Christ. Um, it wow. It was serious and it was revered but it was also a source of constant dialogue. Um, My father would have been one who would argue with his brothers about whether or not if you were to find a Bible on an island, having never grown up with any of it, and you were on a deserted island, and you read it, and you figured it out, could you baptize yourself and be saved? That's the kind of thing that my talk so it was, there was an intellectualism to the Bible. Um, there were preachers, but my dad, who was a lawyer, was so cocky that he would never let us think that any minister kind of owned the copyright on the Bible. So we did not wow. suffer under a kind of authoritarianism that many people who seem to have grown up around the Bible have suffered under. Um so yeah, so my there there was there was a degree of hell fire fear and all that kind of thing, but it was mostly a cause of uh, much dialogue and conversation. The Bible.
0: Wow, and Drew, if if you'd excuse me, kind of inserting uh, myself for a moment. And, no, and I, I was
1: waiting for you to. I, was, <laughs> I, I the whole time I'm thinking I'm like. I might just mute myself for a little bit and let you guys just have a conversation because there's just some connections that got, you guys got to work through that I'm just seeing unfolding, which is pretty cool.
0: <laughs> so um, I, I don't know if um, Father um, Martin McGee or Johnny Clark would be names that um, you would remember from Belfast. Um, uh, but my... Absolutely. my
2: Steve Stockman Prime Man. Yeah.
0: No way. That, that's incredible. So um, uh, my my... Family are from Ardoin. Um, uh, uh, that's where my grandparents uh, uh, w- w- were buried. My dad migrated in 1972 to Australia um, uh, after leaving the monastic order he was a part of in um, Dublin. Um, wow. And so there's those okay. kind of Irish connections. But David, to understand the full extent and why mm. Drew's been grinning as my mate who knows me well during this whole thing. Um, I don't know if the name Marvin Phillips means anything to you. Um, Marvin?
2: Of Dublin?
0: uh, No, no, no. Marvin Phillips uh, coming from uh, the restorationist world. um, No, uh, no. uh, Yeah, right. Um, So... uh, But
2: not Marvin Phillips.
0: Okay. Um, uh, So... Uh, he uh, planted a church in the 60s in uh, Perth, Western Australia, that is non-denominational Church of Christ. So that acapella, um, uh, so I, I had a year at Lipscomb University um, and my parents uh, came to a different understanding of faith through that same movement that you encounter. And so I grew up in 1950s American white Christianity in the um 80s, 90s of Perth, Western Australia until my parents left really damaged by that experience. My dad coming out of a um, a Catholic monastic experience and then finding a home there for a decade and my mum coming out of the secular Jewish experience, coming to faith through Baptist and fine. So in terms of strange connections, like uh, I went to Belmont Church, Um, I I went to, yeah, so there's some... There's some strange, uh, I get some of the particularities of uh, that that very uh, weird world. <laughs> well, let's throw in too that Belmont
2: Church, um, there was a Koinonia bookstore there. That is of course where Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith um, kind of got their start as initially praise folk musicians who eventually, it got marketed You know, but it was a real um, movement that did not have to uh, get marketed quite the way it was. So I would cite Belmont Church as a place that, having grown up with a hymnal, um, certainly no dancing or anything like that, when I was 18 or so, I, in the late 80s, I landed at Belmont and I saw people dancing and I was scandalized by it, but I had read my scripture and I knew that um, King David danced half naked and um, I guess it was Saul's daughter who judged him and was barren or something like that according to the story. So I wanted to have, have children. So I knew that I needed to hold off on my judgment and eventually I became a little more happy, clappy myself through Belmont Church.
0: That that's a and there's a I'm um, Drew I'm finished I, I swear we'll we'll get this interview back on track uh, but there there is this kind of alumni of um, mates like Nadia bolz um uh, uh, Greg Fromble um uh, there's a whole bunch of people who have that particular restoration experience where the natural questions are kind of um, uh, so what part do you sing <laughs> are you an alto a bass or a tenor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so David, I mean, so you, you're sharing quite a bit about your upbringing and those kind of formative experiences, even with the Bible. And I'm curious, like, how you would describe um, your relationship with, like, how you encountered the Bible. Was it something that seemed oppressive, or was it, or was the Bible in those early memories a liberative kind of text for you, or something maybe more nuanced and complex than that?
2: Yes, I think it took a while for it to become liberative for me. I think initially, and no one ever told me this, but I got the impression that I needed to read the whole thing all the way through if I was to have any hope of um, going to heaven and um, escaping eternal torment. Um, So I... I believe I can say that I had read it all the way through by the age of 14 or 15. And uh, I had a good news Bible with these wonderful drawings in it, which was helpful. Um, But I think it was something I thought I needed to kind of slog through. And it was kind of mathematical for me as well. I would have um, preached a sermon at Central Church of Christ, downtown Nashville, in which I... um, asked the question of whether or not the thief on the cross um, who was never baptized, um, how it could be that Jesus would say, today you will be with me in paradise when we (laughs) had no indication that he had been baptized. And my answer to that was that he must have been baptized by John the Baptist or someone else and that Jesus could tell as if Jesus had a kind of baptism scanner and and wouldn't, so I, that is oppressive. um, But it's also kind of this mathematical, this thing has to make sense. And, um, and we have to see how it makes sense if we are going to um, avoid eternal torment. So that was an oppressive read on scripture that I carried with me into my teenage years but then I got to, uh, I got to meeting people who, all, who generally, I have to say, didn't know the Bible quite as well as I did because there was more of a um, survival mechanism going on in terms of memorization and knowing it well. But I met folks who drank alcohol and who I eventually was willing to conclude might possibly be Christian. I met people with a degree of joy and um, I kind of submitted to the genius of others a little bit. And, and I listened to you too. Um, and I could hear all of the, the biblical references. So I think that um, more of a social justice, liberative read probably came to me late teens, early 20s. And um, then again, living in Northern Ireland for, for a bit and going to a thing called the Greenbelt Festival. I started meeting folks um, for whom it was the most formidable array of social criticism ever assembled in one volume. And um, once I picked up on that way of reading it, I I think the, the move that's kind of weird for me is I'm not someone who became disillusioned with Christianity, um, but I'm somebody who kind of, fell in love with the movement of beloved community, um, that had been there all along. Um, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Um, one of the convictions that Drew and I share that we try and, uh, uh draw out of people we come into conversation with David is that, um, people's own stories, their own narratives that, you know, the particulars of uh, preaching that sermon that you mentioned, um, mm. uh, that there are gifts in people's own experiences, even unique experiences, um, or maybe even particularly unique experiences, mm-hmm. uh, from where people can understand, uh, what it is, um, To turn the world upside down, um, what it is to read scripture in such ways. I can already hear a thread uh, around this particular form of um, uh, uh, fundamentalism, which I had some um, experience with um, and how that has shaped. But if you were to name um, what out of this particular experience might be a gift for others. Um, the peculiarity of um, your experience that might help others see how scripture turns the world upside down, what things would you go to? What would be the shorthand references for you?
2: Um, In terms of biblical references?
0: Uh, In terms of, um, I guess, the lens in which we see. Um, uh, all scripture. Um, So how our own experience. uh, um, Drew, I I don't have the shorthand in front of me, but we usually ask the question with the wording um, that eludes me at the moment.
1: From your experience, what lens that you've been given that you could give to others in terms of almost like a hermeneutical lens, right? Yeah. Uh, that you read yeah. scripture through, but based on your own lived experiences.
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, I think that I was tempted to read it as a kind of information manual initially, um, as a kind of text that by which you measure doctrine and figure out what's safe and that kind of thing. But I think in time, I came to see it as, well, I mean, here's, here's a line that has probably come to me in recent years primarily, that it is the compass, that the Bible is the composition notebook of a millennia long caravan of asylum seekers. Wow. That it is a crying out loud of asylum seeking communities, Um, both to God and sometimes um, I don't want to say against God, but I want to say against unworthy conceptions of God. Mm -hmm. And um, it is not, I I think it was presented to me as a book of answers, but I think now I see it as a collection of questions that are so liberative and so... um, good and worthy that they haven't been answered definitively yet. Um, The Bible, as a collection of love, longing, lamentation, um, anger, honest indignation, all of this, um, given the way that the Bible is packaged, one might think that it is a collection of sayings, all of which would look good on a poster, with a basket full of puppies or something like that. Um, but you don't have to look too hard um, to realize that that is not at all the case. And that it, um, a word we use in my Bible class is theophany, a vision of God, that there are different theophanies collected in this text. And um, that the, this text should not be read flatly. You should not use a um, a divine decree or what was understood as a divine decree to slay Canaanites, for instance, as a way to cancel out Jesus's command to love your enemy. Um, it mustn't be read flatly. I can hear Lee camp um, in my head <laughs> saying something like that you you have to let Jesus and the prophets um, to deploy an unfortunate verb, you have to let Jesus and the prophets trump whatever unworthy conceptions of God seem to be underwriting um, revenge, violence, colonialism, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it is a liberating text. I, I do. I am now part of the uh, Peace USA side of the Presbyterian church. Mm -hmm. And when the Bible is read aloud, we say, listen for the word of the Lord. And um, the word of the Lord is present in the reading of the text, but we mustn't ever, as some in my background did say, let's see what God has to say about this. And then you just open the Bible and read whatever's there. There's lots there that is not God talking. Um, And in the case of Job, there's entire chapters that are um, a chasing after the wind, according to God at the end of Job. So it has to be read with care. Another little hermeneutic there is: I like to say that it doesn't make to say, it doesn't make sense to say the Bible says and then finish the sentence any more than you could say Queen's Greatest Hits Volume One says. It's um, it's a collection of sometimes differing witnesses, but the biblical witness, um, all told, is a just witness, a righteous witness that we get to draw from as we try to make sense of ourselves and others.
0: Yeah, well, David, um, we'd love to have you help us explore um, the passage that you've chosen and how we might turn uh, our world upside down through this particular passage.
2: Okay. Um, Well, I'll read it again as a way of getting it going. Um, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And part of what that does for me is I do think, I mean, this is just wild conjecture, but um, the challenge to not, wrestle against people, um, Mm -hmm. but to wrestle against systemic evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, The military industrial incarceration, entertainment incarceration complex, to know that everyone, all of us are stuck and compromised in particular mechanisms, makes it easier for us to refrain from demonizing one another personally. And I would like to think that this passage really is something of an elaboration on Jesus's um, prayer as he was being tortured and executed and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Hmm. They are stuck in a mob mentality. They are blinded by their own weaponized despair. And if we can think of people who we are prone to um, describe as enemies as being stuck in something that isn't worthy of themselves. Um, we can refrain from wrestling with flesh and blood and instead wrestle with the infrastructure of horrible toxic ideas that have people um, behaving in toxic ways. I like to say that a, the toxic personality is a traumatized personality Mm. And I do believe that Paul here is urging us to not mistake, to not project our own fear on others in such a way that we think that we're wrestling um, particular people. I will throw in um, that that part of the work for me over the last four years, when we have elected officials who seem hell-bent on destroying the humanly inhabitable world and banking on white supremacist terror at every turn, yeah. it's hard to not um, project on particular people um, all evil in some way. Um, so I do think this, pa- and I'll, I'll throw into that I've um, have been shown that jihad is struggle and mm. within Islam we're taught that the greater jihad is the inner jihad hmm. so I think to jihad properly is to not wrestle with people but again wrestle with with the trauma with the projection with the um, mental chains I think of um, Blake calling it mind forged manacles and Bob Marley calling it mental slavery that that's what we're trying to liberate ourselves and others from in these um, mechanisms called principalities and powers.
0: As you're talking about this, uh, the, the, the trauma and the toxic and how they're related uh, and even um, using um, Arabic to, to talk of um, struggle and giving a um, orthodox um, understanding of mm. what jihad means. Yeah. I, I, was, I had flashbacks to September 11th, 2001, the, the Sunday um, that followed, or, or maybe it was during the week. And at the time, I was attending Belmont Church and Woodland Hills, um, both of which might mean something to people. Oh, yeah.
2: In, I know both of them.
0: In, in Nashville. And Drew, my, my experience um, in those churches was watching the, the heartbreak of how they responded um, and realizing that I felt so alien, um, and so Belmont started a series on um, uh, the the heresy of Islam, basically. Oh, and no. they taught this um, series going through. They referred to um, uh, our Muslim neighbours' uh, uh, prophet as uh, a paedophile, like it was this kind of. And I was like, I can't, I can't be here anymore. Like, I yeah. can't, I can't support this. Um, mm. At Woodland Hills, um, they responded in a very different way. They invited a local imam to come in and to share um, his faith. Um, uh, He articulated for the thousands of people um, gathered that um, this wasn't Islam. Um, It was beautiful. It was moving. I was in tears. And then they handed out to everyone stickers that said, God bless America and invited um, Muslims and Christians to stand together and sing God bless America. (laughs) And no <laughs> I started crying again, David, yeah, um, yeah. but for, for different reasons. Like It was like I, I um, these two expressions of um, Nashville Christianity after tra- the trauma of September 11th seem to highlight something of the, um, the, the grainy details of what you're talking about in the abstract with this particular passage. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up in a place where white supremacy is the air that people breathe in Nashville. And while that's true of everywhere, the, the amount of oxygen, (laughs) the the particular chemical, um, uh, uh, percentage of white supremacy in, in that city, I'd never experienced before and, and found it hard to breathe as somebody who's, who's paler than most white people. Mm -hmm. Um, as you talk about um, uh, this particular passage, I would love to hear you reflect on this particular moment that we're living through. And um, uh, the Drew, you, you quoted C.T. Vivian um, the other day. I loved it. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. Um, it was
1: C.T. Vivian said um, he had said that he basically just framed the civil rights movement and the freedom struggle of the 50s and 60s as a clash of two Christianities. Mm. Um, And I just thought that was, I don't know, it was probably over a decade ago that I heard him say it, but it just kind of stuck with me when he described it as a clash of two Christianities, which was pretty profound.
0: Mm. And it's with that in mind, David, would you speak to um, what this passage looks like um, today for you in the lead up to the election of Trump?
2: Absolutely. And I'll throw in, yeah, the the 9-11 attacks were... I was there in Nashville. I taught at Christ Presbyterian Academy, um, where a lot of those Belmont church kids go. Uh-huh. Um, and I, one thing that I eventually wrote about, I had the Pledge of Allegiance was not a daily thing at the high school where I taught. And there was a desire to rein, reinstitute it after the 9-11 attacks. And that created a problem for me not because I ever made a big deal about the fact that I wasn't saying the words when people stood up, you know, hand over heart and all that, but um, I really, I came into conflict with not administration so much as parents who um, somehow word got out that I was refusing to do the pledge, which wasn't exactly true um, because no one had ever told me that I had to, but it did it created a bit of a, a crisis within that world, especially because I was—I wasn't even—they um, might want to try to peg me as a liberal or something, but I was actually out-conservative in them because <laughs> to say, Jesus says no vows or pledges. It isn't even about patriotism; it's about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. But out of that, um, and, and out of the uh, sort of uh, the militant hyper patriotism that mistakes itself for um, the kingdom of God, um, a lot of my work um, came out of the conversations that we were having at that point in time. One of the early military operations was called Operation Infinite Justice. And I was really interested in talking about you know what the Hebrew prophets would have to say about any any nation trying to take on that kind of um, uh, role in the world. Um, and and I've, I'm heading toward the Trump era, but we had a moment in on September 11th, 2002. George W. Bush essentially said that the light of American freedom is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, So you had that conflation of the divine logos and Lady Liberty or whatever um, way back then. And I think that's a wave of um, madness that that we're still contending with. But to take it back to beloved community, the civil rights era, which James Lawson and Congressman Lewis referred to as the nonviolent movement of America, Mm -hmm. we had a moment just before the Trump inauguration, when um, John Lewis calmly asserted that he did not think of Trump as a legitimate president, and therefore would not be attending the inauguration. He didn't attend Bush's first inauguration either, because he believed that the Supreme Court had stolen that election. But he, he got tweeted at by Trump, because he said, I don't think he's a legitimate president. But what did not get highlighted was he said, I do believe in forgiveness. And it was so of the beloved community to hold that door open of if anyone wants to repent, if anyone wants to um, enter a space of confession where anyone in that administration heard the tape and knows that that our president is an unrepentant sexual assailant, um, holding that door open to, to think it through and, and to rebuke the spirit of white supremacy. Um, that's kind of what I think the job is now. I, I'm an Enneagram nine. I'm not someone who looks for conflict, but I have felt over the last four years that it, it's my job to say plenty, um upsets people. Um, so I have felt called, um, and I, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm, I grew up thinking you can't, you should never tell somebody to shut up or call anyone a fool or an idiot. So I, I don't like to call anyone names, conservative, liberal, whatever that might be, but because the president and other elected officials, because I share custody over them and I am responsible for their actions and their speech, I have felt compelled, um, to say aloud um, what he functionally is. Nobody is just a white supremacist. Nobody is just a sexual predator. But if the commander of the United States military is descriptively those things, um, I think we have to say that until he no longer has power over other people. Um, So I, I have been uncomfortably bold over the last four years, but I, in a Daniel Berrigan kind of um, burning coal on my heart, (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. mouth kind of thing, I have felt that I have to speak this way. And I hope that I can chill out a little (laughs) in the months to come, but I have felt compelled to say it. I think I owe it to my neighbors and my children and my country um, to speak plainly while also you know, kind of praying a prayer of may Donald Trump know joy in the root of joy, and be delivered from suffering in the root of suffering. I think you can love someone and call for their resignation. Hmm. The idea that you can't is kind of that frenzied, reactive economy that uh, that is one of those principalities and powers we have to um, take on. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That, and I think that's. For me, um, the challenge of, let's see, on one hand, being able to see, which gets particularly hard with, I won't lie, like with someone like Donald Trump, it gets particularly hard, but how to insist to see their humanity and at mm-hmm. the same time, name the white supremacy and the patriarchy and the just the egotism and all that that is expressing that that he wields power right from his administration in that place and impacts others with his rhetoric and his policies. Mm -hmm. So, so like how to hold both of those things together, I think are hard and they can be especially difficult in moments like we are in now, but I do think there's something really important, even in our, just holding onto our own humanity to be able Mm. to see other people's humanity, right? The complexity that everyone is multidimensional and complex, um, even when I want to, you know, cuss Donald Trump out, right? Like, mm-hmm. even, even if when that's building up inside of me, um, there's something really powerful. But it's hard, and I think that, you know, for me, I mean, you guys have been talking so much about, like, Nashville and the civil rights mean, Like, for me, it was always King, was <laughs> always my actual embodied, like, teacher, right? In terms of looking back, I had just, there was a decade of my life where I just was, like, so zoned in, just immersed in the civil rights story, the freedom struggle of the 50s and 60s, in particular reading so much from King. Mm. And he taught me like what Jesus meant when it means love your enemies. Um, Mm. He was my embodied teacher um, Mm. in a way. And I could say, I mean, there's certainly others in my life as well, but, but in the most radical sense to see the full extent of how far that goes, it was King that helped me see that and understand what Jesus fully meant by love your enemies. And in this case, what it means to not war against flesh and blood, right? And, and then, in that sense then, gives me that much more insights to pay attention to the systems and structures and policies and practices, the narratives and cultural ethos of the moments and name the devil in the room, so to speak.
2: Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, my phrase there is to go granular, like all culture is granular. Yeah. And um, that helps me recognize that while Trump is useful, To people, Um, he is not a happy human being and he is not, he feels perpetually bullied pretty much by everyone around him. And he has that very deep sense that if he was to uh, change his tune and say that climate change is real and defund the police or something like that, he is suddenly a bare forked animal. He is a mortal with no protection. And um, that, that going back a little bit, I remember when Bush and Kerry were debating, um, Matt Lauer asked Bush, can you really win a war on terror? And Bush said, ah, oh, well, you know, when you put it that way, no, I mean, we'll always have terror. And, <laughs> Kerry, and Kerry seized on that moment and very unfortunately said, the president just said, we're not gonna win the war on terror. Let me tell you something, when I'm president, We will win the war on terror. And I thought, how unfortunate that these two millionaires are, in one sense, the least free men in our country. They both know that this is nonsense. Um, And of course, Bush had to go back and say, I need to clear something up. We will win the war on terror. And um, on that mechanism, yeah, that, that folks have partnered with a kind of faith cartel, a kind of faith laundering deal even in nashville a lot of folks who are at belmont church when you were there jared are now holding public office and are in there with trump and yeah. um i taught their kids and i know that they they would not have dreamt if i had told them in the 90s um you're gonna let donald trump do your thinking for you one day but they're they're stuck they are partnered with um tacticians of evil, I want to say. I don't want to call anybody evil, but I do want to say that there are tacticians of evil. And um, yeah. I, nobody wakes up wanting to be a, a bigot or a uh, anti-masker or a science denier, you know, but they, they are stuck. And um, how to continue inviting people who are similarly stuck into beloved community and repentance and wholeness um, is the work, I think.
0: I, I so um, deeply appreciate and, and think it's prophetic, um, this tension that you're holding. I, I'm also so aware, particularly in this moment, like I hear other voices. Um, mm. uh, Dr Drew has lifted up um, Martin King, um, but Stokely Carmichael and the voice that he represents um, haunts me uh, to bring it back to, to Belfast. Um, if, if I was to um, talk like this um, with my family who still live there in mm-hmm. um, such poverty um, and, and still like decades now after um, the Good Friday peace agreements, yet mm-hmm. they talk about how Sinn Féin has sold us out, how um, ev- they're all wearing Amani suits and travelling through Europe and yet um, uh, nothing has changed for, for us. Um, these yeah. voices that want to say, uh, y- your talk of loving your enemies, um, it is in fact, um, it, it's not a battle at all. Yeah. Not mm. only not against flesh and blood, but not against anything real, that the oppression yeah. <laughs> that we're experiencing, uh, mm. still, still stays. And I can hear Stokely Carmichael saying, um, I will love those, um, who, who love me or, or, um, yeah. Malcolm X's, um, challenges, um, uh, there's no way we're turning the other cheek. Um, mm. and, um, uh, Malcolm's provocative, um, uh, threat to those who were threatening John Lewis, whose name you lifted up and, and saying, you better les- listen to him uh, until I come down there and mm. uh, make you listen to me in a reality where Nashville culturally niceness replaces sanctification. hmm how, how do we talk about enemy love in a way that does wrestle with that which feeds on and causes death versus um, end up being complicit um, and speaking in some um, church niceties uh, while people continue to die on our streets and in our prisons and uh, the economy continues to prey on the poor? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I want to say I don't have a should. And I am, I'm trying to describe the posture that I try to bring um, when I'm involved in in protests, um, mm. but I'm not telling anybody this this is how you have to do it. And I'm certainly, I, I realized in recent months because now Governor Bill Lee, who I think probably went to Belmont church around the time that you were there. <laughs> and,
0: this and is as amazing. Kids,
2: I taught his kids. And I know him because I've taught in prisons. And the last time we spoke, he was in the prison as well, just not as governor, but as a businessman wanting to be involved in a prison nonprofit. But his unwillingness to speak to Black Lives Matter protests, protesters, um, has he has terrorized people that I'm standing alongside and praying with and standing on the barricade with. He's arrested people and made nonviolent assembly outside of the state capitol a felony.
0: My goodness. Um,
2: Yes, so that he can avoid having to speak to them. And he has said, I won't, and they've spent, the group is called the Ida Ida B. Wells Plaza Protesters. Mm. And he has said he won't talk to them. And when they say, why not? he'll say, because I only talk to people who believe in racial reconciliation. It's really insidious, really insidious because he doesn't know what they believe because he hasn't talked to them about it. And he tries to set the standard as if he, a white millionaire, a millionaire of faith is in a position to dictate what reconciliation is. So it has gotten hairy already Um, I have, I've, while standing there, I've realized that my job um, is to be a witness. And Mm -hmm. when people are portrayed as rioters or when state legislators say that they felt intimidated, I can go on Twitter or talk to whomever and say, I was there, they weren't intimidating you. They were trying to talk to you. And if you are trying to pass a law that demonizes or criminalizes their constitutional rights, it's appropriate for us to follow you to your car and heckle you that there's a place for heckling. And of course, in a way that I don't do, there's all manner of expletives um, that are sometimes traded. And I enjoy, um, enjoy is that the word, but I feel like part of my job is to be a 50 year old witness um, who can remind the state troopers that somebody dropping an F bomb in front of them doesn't mean that they can push them. They are exercising their constitutional rights. Um, So I think there, I think Gene Sharp said that no two nonviolent actions are exactly right,
0: uh, Mm -hmm. are exactly
2: the same. same. Uh And I think there's just so many ways to dramatize the, the wickedness, the injustice. Mm -hmm. We have to dramatize these tensions to bring them to the surface and to make them something that the public has to deal with. I am committed, I would like to say to Mm nonviolence, but when um, all this question of property being sacred, um, that I know (laughs) it's not. And um, I'm, I'm interested in kind of amplifying a wide variety of voices and not all of them buy into uh to jesus's strategy or even nonviolent strategy i would i would say i have partners in the work that are on a spectrum of how to uh how to overcome white supremacy
1: yeah and i'm that absolutely the same case for me i mean i i'm a part of um i was invited to be a part of what they're calling now the Harrisburg Abolition Table, which is a group that seeking abolition in our city of the policing system. And we have obviously a wide range and I'm probably, they probably, you know, think of, you know, some of my nonviolent stuff um, suspiciously, but um, but um, there's space for me at the table along with, I'm glad to be at the table along with them as well. And one of the things I've said here in Harrisburg, and I might have said it online a couple of times as well, but the, you know, when I've heard some people just disparaging, you know, more, you could at least say not nonviolent strategies to engage in um, social change and focusing on, you know, some target burn down or something like that is the issue that we should be focused on. And I, I, the example I gave was, you know, imagine walking into a room and you see an adult beating down on a toddler. And then you see the toddler punch back. Right. And then you start scolding the toddler about how they should be responding to the beating that they're taking, uh, and that they should be doing it non violently because they're, they're exacerbating the situation or something like that. I mean, the uh, fact of the matter is that that would be ridiculous. Right. And yet somehow folks can have no problem knowing full well that the United States government has been literally beating down on my community for centuries. Uh-huh. Um, and then we want to make a big deal about, you know, how people respond in moments of extreme anger and frustration and laments in response to what's going on. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's just, it's it's ridiculous to put so much attention. It's, it shows that we have no grasp of actual, like, the real violence taking place in our world today. And some of it is just because we're just so Mm hyper-individualistic. But uh, but yeah, it it can be frustrating, I think, to hear that rhetoric. And so even as someone who is, I might call myself a peacemaker and certainly um, committed to the practices and strategies of nonviolence, um, but I I often don't use the word pacifism to describe myself. And I also will defend other people publicly (laughs) when they engage in other modes. Um, And I know that's probably, hypocritical to some people to see me do that but uh, it, it feels most right and maybe some of that is again thinking about Dr. King and his own witness and own, his own ways of struggling through that but then also then um, so Jared knows that I, I mean I wrote a whole chapter comparing Barabbas and Jesus in a way that hopefully forces people to grapple that with it with, for themselves yeah. as well and I think that it relates to our current moment in a lot of ways.
0: David, I'm not sure if you've seen um, Drew's new book that has just come out, but you'll love that chapter.
2: Oh, I believe it. I, I saw it. I saw the title. It's not, can I get a witness? It's it's witnesses. Who will be a witness? Be a witness. Yeah. Yeah. Who will be a witness? Yes.
0: And Drew, I think what you're naming is everything to do uh, with this passage that like Paul, or at least um, uh, a, a, a disciple of Paul, whoever is writing the letter to Ephesians and, scholars go back and forward on that, but when they come to this passage, obviously they're talking to a people where a real temptation is to see the the struggle, to to see um, the the work, the wrestle against flesh and blood. Um, That These are people who are in a context where they're tempted um, to um, uh, demonise, write off, dehumanise other people because of their own experience of oppression. And so here is a pastoral word in the midst of that, reminding them that our wrestle isn't with flesh and blood, Uh, but it is a wrestle, it is a struggle, it is a fight, and it is against powers. And I think um, so often people's disregard of nonviolence is not because they've seen it and found it wanting, but they've rarely seen it, uh, other than um, people who are in positions uh, not of oppression, uh, but of relative comfort with no proximity to the people experiencing real pain, who appeal to nonviolence, like the Kentucky Attorney General, um, mm-hmm. who, um, when you hear uh, the, the principalities and powers uh, the authorities um, of of this dark age, actually appealing to nonviolence and using it as a way to actually pacify people, right, it, right. It, yeah. it pushes people into a corner where um, setting the local supermarket on fire um, seems like the only option. Uh, but because so few who claim a commitment to nonviolence have risked anything that would look like, um, well, to to use the biblical uh, language, uh, being a witness, being a martyr. Um, and because nothing has been risked, um, so few fruits of that risk have been seen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that 's true david um, with with that in mind um, i i 'm so shaped and, and you have this um, fantastic line. you have so many f- fantastic lines you you write in ways that I find inspiring and discouraging, both at the same time <laughs> oh my goodness, this is um, uh, and you, you write, uh, the rest of the world has been forced to drink of the wrath of America's fornication. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's an incredible statement. And I think the context of it is uh, maybe you having a, a, a drink in a pub in Belfast with uh, an Austrian friend. Um,
2: um, yeah. And we were talking about the unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood part.
0: That's right. And so this is the part that I find really fascinating because um, these very American specific conversations, which um, obviously have deeply formed me like um, uh, personally, but in another sense that um, being forced to um, uh, drink of of the wrath, that the uh, American entertainment industrial complex, which you name alongside the incarceration and um, uh, militarism uh, uh, as part of, um, that matrix, um, means that the, the rest of the world, uh, if you've had access to the internet or at least television, has also been formed by these American realities. As we discuss the specifics of Nashville and uh, yeah. the, the the struggle, not against flesh and blood, but um, for transformation of um, uh, dark systems, and we think about mm-hmm. the, the world... Uh, r- the rest of the world. Would you share that story about your realization there and um, the particularities of uh, American entertainment and how it, um, (laughs) whether we like it or not, the the rest of us have to drink of that as well?
2: Yeah, we, um, America, well, the myth of restorative violence Mm -hmm. is tied to American identity. Um, The revenge fantasy films in which the bad guy, the alleged bad guy, whoever it is, um, is controlled, brought down. Um, A situation is healed through strategic use of violence. That is, um, I hope that America will not, that the word America, which is kind of a, a promise, a curse, a prayer around the world, that, that America will come to mean beloved community, that it will come to mean um, something more restorative and confessional and repentant. Um, but at least for now, we are not, um, well, I, I think of Daniel Berrigan had a moment not long after the dropping of the bombs, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he tried to share with some students that um, there was talk of bombing islands instead of cities in order to show the force and bring Japan to a place of surrender, but they opted to drop these bombs on the cities Mm -hmm. and they didn't have to. And he watched his students, this would have been in the early 50s, completely revolt and say, no, we had to. Like it was as if he had said, Jesus is not risen or something to these, Catholic school children. And um, because that myth was the the unacknowledged catechesis of the entire country. Wow. Um, So when I, um, in 92, I'm in Northern Ireland, it's the concluding scene of Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And I'm trying to make a kind of Rush Limbaugh argument (laughs) or something, saying that the film, and it's so strange because Clint Eastwood has sort of lost his mind in recent years, but I was trying to argue that it was a little too Hollywood liberal at the end when um, Clint Eastwood's character has lost his mind and he's saying he's going to kill everybody um, and there's an American flag flying in the back. And so uh, the lone American having drinks with these folks in Belfast I, I tried to argue for America in that moment, um, or suggesting that the film was a little overwrought in its critique of American foreign policy, and I was corrected. And so you know, America's is everybody. It is the very, it's the very cowboy idea of we're going to come in here and we're going to take care of the baddies. And that that was a revelation to me. And, and it, it I, when I was in France, this is another little anecdote. I was struggling to understand people were trying to speak to me in English and I thought that one guy was asking me to explain the concept of Manifest Destiny and I eventually realized that he was asking me to tell him about Memphis, Tennessee. Um, as if they are kind of this same, as they are one thing.
0: Although. Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: You that's know? how it came to be. Manifest that's a- <laughs> You know, That's I just right. finished reading uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, which is mm. all about just the expansion, right? The unquenchable expansion. And so how, you know, tennis is, uh, this, this is what comes to my mind. Is <laughs> In some ways it is, uh, you know, it's, its existence is because of manifest destiny. But yeah.
2: Right. And James Lawson said, um, eulogizing King um, after he was assassinated, said that Memphis would be remembered as a kind of Golgotha in, mm. in World history, um, so yeah, it's it's all one live action folktale, very real.
0: And this is one of the things that I appreciated so much about your new book is um, I, I had this very um, surreal experience um, that still delights me to think back on where I once had drinks with um, the British folk singer, Billy Bragg and Miroslav Volf, which sounds oh. like a dream, right? Like like an actual dream that you'd wake up and go, wouldn't that be fun? But that mm. I had this actual experience and I was talking with Billy Bragg about his um, version with Wilco of um, uh, Have You Been Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? And yes. he was, he was joking. Um, and I think he was quoting somebody else, but he was joking about the, it's it's not the kind of thing that you could say to the queen. Mm. We're having this conversation of about, um, uh, British Christendom spirituality, um, or, um, uh, Christian supremacy, we could call it, or a Christianity that plays chaplain to colonization. And yeah. it wasn't until reading, um, Uh, the possibility of America that uh, I realized um, uh, while I didn't think that was true, you you write about um, how um, lifting up the name of Christ uh, by public officials will uh, evoke, I think your language is, um, respectful nods, while Mm -hmm. there would be embarrassment to actually name Jesus, (laughs) Um, that that revolutionary peasant.
2: Yeah, and that when Bush was running... um when the election that I would argue the Supreme Court gave him in the Republican Mm -hmm. primary, he was asked to name his uh, favorite philosopher. And uh, he said, that's easy, Christ. And I thought, oh, no, he's got it. He he will now win. Um, It
0: was that interesting moment because people did laugh, like the, the crowd that was present. Um, uh, While it garnered respect from some, there was a murmur of laughter from others before the adjudicator actually asked him to spell that out.
2: Yeah, and it's rough because he did spell it out in a personal private, he, Jesus saved my life. And then it got even worse, both in terms of the awkwardness, but also the appeal He said, if you don't understand what I mean, I don't think I'm going to be able to explain it to you, which is that kind of Jesus as, or rather Christ as code word, as a personal private transaction. And of course, I wished that the moderator had said, well, if you're referring to Jesus, um, how would the teachings of Jesus affect your understanding of state killing, um, preemptive war, you know, all that kind of thing. But yeah. that isn't what is meant by Christ, nor is it what's meant by this man of faith thing. The generalized faith that is not to be talked about or questioned, but merely appealed to, is the kind of the white supremacist faith cartel that is um, is the party in power at present. When Eric Reed, the football player, knelt as Kaepernick did. Um, Mike Pence and um, his wife flew to Indianapolis, and the second lady flew to Indianapolis for the express purpose of mocking Eric Reed's Christian witness. He he had specifically said, "I'm kneeling because faith without works is dead." But they um, on the taxpayer dime they shunned him, and they can do that because of this Christ faith thing. That does not have any kind of critique or awareness of um, white supremacist terror, and and I think that the Christ that can't say Black Lives Matter is a false Christ, is wow. anti. And um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult time in uh, trying to make these arguments because um, it I haven't figured out how to to break through the. The militant ignorance of American Christ by those standards.
0: Mm, wow! Uh, as you're saying that, I'm realizing that it's not merely the gerrymandering of elections uh, for people to get into power, but also of the scriptures to get into mm-hmm. power. That yep. the lines are drawn and boundaries are, are redrawn around what passages will be uh, 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 pulled in, quoted etc, and uh, very stark lines of what would be left out. Um, uh, So it doesn't challenge the kind of power that we hold, and uh, the kind of power we we lust after.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah,
1: but even with, uh, I mean, this is kind of old news now. But I mean, when you were saying it just remind me, I mean, Trump didn't even have to quote the Bible, just him remember the holding the Bible uh, awkwardly, like he had never held it before in front of the church, Um, I mean that was his that was literally all he needed to do, which just shows the thinness of actual commitment to jesus necessary right um yeah. to make this christ so to speak um be your passport to to move around and to get access and so yeah it's it's an interesting way to see it from that from that lens
2: yeah and he does not he he is I hesitate to even say it but he is almost commendably noncommittal. He has others make connect those dots for him. Right. Um Franklin Graham floated the idea that he had held the decision card in a decisive way at Billy Graham's 80th or 90th party, um birthday party. So he has all of these false prophets who make the argument that he's a kind of King David or Cyrus or something like that. But he um, he hasn't pretended um, <laughs> to be a fan of, of Jesus of Nazareth in yeah, any right. way. Right. He just kind of floats in and it probably increases his appeal because it makes it possible for folks to have a kind of condescension toward him. Um, but yeah, oh, it's awful.
0: It's so awful. And, and in a way, uh, both um, Who Will Be a Witness and The Possibility of America, both your books in this moment um, hold out clearly that um, if your nation, uh, or, or mine for that matter, are to be um, delivered uh, from all that doesn't look like what we see in the life of the Nazarene, um, <laughs> we must renounce a Christianity which actually is is structured and is animated in such a way that cancels out his very life.
2: That's right. That's right. That's right. I tweeted the other day, um, to kind of get a thing going. I said the white supremacist mind cannot be saved. And Mm. that of course really got, I, it was knowingly provocative, but I was trying to inspire some questions. And note, you know, of course, um, salvation is a process. Wholeness is a process. But this posture, the white supremacist posture cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It has to go. It, It's, and repentance is the first word of gospel. Um, it's a non-negotiable letting go of this wicked, wicked um, poltergeist, I like to call it. I call it a white supremacist, antichrist,
0: poltergeist,
2: while noting um, that I myself have been haunted, haunted. and held sure. by... What's that?
0: Yeah, no, just uh, I was saying sure that um, the, the confession of um, being haunted um, ourselves um, is, uh, and I think David, this is um, Willie James Jennings had a, um, a paper that he gave called Can White People Be Saved? And it was Mm, a similar provocation. And um, uh, uh, to butcher what is quite an elegant argument um, uh, and sum it up in Jared's language, the answer is no. Uh, Whiteness is one of the things that we must be saved from if whiteness is about lording power over others. So the Uh work for us to actually um, uh, recover our ancestors and who we were uh, before we traded in our stories for whiteness, um, Uh this is part of the work that we um, yeah, th- those of us who are melanin challenged must do.
2: Yes. Yeah. A call to wholeness. And I think mm. of James Baldwin saying, you only think I'm black because you think you're white, that it, that it's an exception, yeah. um, uh, that we can relinquish and, uh, begin to recover from.
0: Incredible. Yes.
1: It's all good. This is very good.
2: This is very good.
0: Dear brother, th- this has been a joy. Um, uh, thank you so much for uh, giving of your time. I'm I'm really excited for people to read the possibility of America, how the gospel can mend our God-blessed and God-forsaken land, um, in conversation <laughs> with Drew's book, which I think provides a, um, theological accomplice for the practicalities of Jesus-like trouble um, uh, to your diagnosis. So we appreciate your time and. Uh, 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 giving of yourself um, in the way that you do in uh, prisons that people don't see um, uh, as an educator um, uh, and also as an author that we're blessed by. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. I'm so grateful to be in conversation with y'all. And I hope that we do it again and we get to have time in person in the not too distant future. Yes, Um, absolutely. Definitely got to do
0: that. Thank you, David. if people were going to find, um, your work and and witness, where would you direct them?
2: I would, hmm, I don't have a website at present. I have my Twitter feed. Um, and I've got my Belmont faculty page. Um, I think Twitter and, um, America magazine is my primary. That's where most of my Hmm. articles land now. I I will mention that I've got a thing on LeBron James, um, in paste recently. Um, because I think one of his tweets a few weeks ago kind of challenged sports culture to in America to risk some some millions in um, defiance of uh, uh, white supremacist policies. so paste magazine mm-hmm. America magazine, and just look up my stuff at your local
0: bookstores. The inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com inverse.